This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. All the shapes on the waveform are the same size, so yes, I shapes. am happy. I could do an actual introduction, but this is The Wind-Up. I'm Scott Tilford. You're Josh Brown. It's The Wind-Up, is it's it? It's The Wind-Up in 2023. We actually made it to the start of 2023, the weirdest sounding year in quite some time, I think. I think so, right? It feels like <laughs> the future now. Not that 2022 and 2021 and 2020 didn't, but this year, Scott Tilford, this I is have the a year. hunch. This is the year. Yes. I don't know what it's the year for, but I'm hoping it's video games. <laughs> it's definitely the F of video games. They may be sequels. They may be remakes of things that we already know. One of them may just be set at nighttime. Don't worry about it. They're going to get you in. Are going to get throw into the money this at the game, Josh next Brown. Next week, because we've decided for next week's wind up, which yes. will go out on Monday, hopefully, or maybe Tuesday. I'm crossing knows? the fingers. Crossing the fingers. We're going to do a big look ahead at the games of 2023 <laughs> because I've come in to work, Scott, really excited about the games that are coming out, and then you said, <laughs> "I'm not really that excited, Josh. I, I wish think I was all more remakes and sequels, and I want." something new and I yeah. totally get that but at the same time man Go on. and I'll save it for next week's podcast I think yeah. and I'm going to put it out right now if uh-huh. all of these games drop if all of these things happen all of these TV shows and movies come out the VR comes out we get new announcements I think this could be the best year in gaming for at least the last decade. <laughs> I am. Um, I just want the new things, and I don't want to be. I'm. You talked about before we were recording about banishing certain things to 2022, and I'm so aware that I say that so much. I want new <laughs> stuff, um, and it's not that I'm not acknowledging the likes of Spider-Man 2 or Water Starfield. I guess I just I have zero faith in Bethesda, so I'm not putting all my eggs in the Bethesda basket. However, when I look at the lineup of Resident Evil 4, Dead Space, whatever else ends up coming true, um, I'm, I wish I had a new IP to get really excited about. I wish there yeah. was a new thing because it ain't forced spoken like that thing has a playable demo and it's abysmal that thing's coming out in a couple of weeks time scott telford and i know and you said to me before we started recording you're not going to get forespoken but i don't think I, so i know you're going to see that game drop it's the first big game of the year yeah you're going to get it you're going to be there midnight probably I just, I, I don't, I need I need to surgically extract this poison from my veins <laughs> um, because I do want to check in on every major game, every single game that people are going to be talking about. I don't think people are going to be talking about Forspoken. Um, I feel like that game has just fallen down. It's continually falling down the stairs. Um, and I just, it's not going to hit the bottom, but it's just no. going to keep falling. They might patch it a bit. Maybe it'll fall a bit smoother. Yeah. But I don't think, I just, what a weird, <laughs> weird algorithmic abomination that game is. Like just, listen, you know, I feel like a computer I wrote that dialogue. That probably is true, yeah. but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Love this it. is next week's podcast where we're looking <laughs> yeah, at it 2023 is. stuff. What yes. are we talking about today? Well, we thought we'd do a little check-in on uh, what we've been playing over the Christmas, or just general thoughts on the start of 2023, and I've got a handful of big news talking point things that we missed out on across the last few weeks. Um, so let's do a little, just do a little thing. What are you thinking? How are you feeling? 2023? Um, you know what, Scott? How's it, how's, it, how's it striking? Truthfully, my friend, I didn't have a very good Christmas holiday. It wasn't like that at all. as enjoyable or as relaxing as I wanted it mm. to be, unfortunately. Fortunately, I'm sure a lot of people can relate. I feel like everyone has sort of come back afterwards, enduring some bad news or some hard times. Yeah, but I feel that. It is 2023 now, and I'm hoping that this year things can look up a little yes. bit. So right now, I'm cautiously 
optimistic. I will back that. I will say that I had, yeah, we had some uh, some bad news too, but I will also extend the hand to anyone listening to this and know that we did get through it together. It yeah. is a new year. You're listening to us right now and there's a lot of things to look forward to. Um, As but yeah. the mountain goat said, I am going to make it through this year, Scott Tilford. And is that a, certainly did do that. Is that some forespoken dialogue? In, in their song this year, they said the words, I am going to make it through this year. So therefore, <laughs> I thought, words to live by. <laughs> I thought you were referencing like an old fairy tale or some sort of old like child's fable. You know, it's just like what the wolf says or yeah. what's the time, Mr. Yes. The mountain goat says? Is that a band? They do. It's a band. They do have a song called Up the Wolves, though. So, That's good. You know, very on thematic brand. It is. Maybe, I don't know. I'll tell you what I need to talk about, uh, speaking of things. I, I play a lot over the Christmas and I'm going to reel these off, if only for my own, so that someone out there knows that I lived like this yes. for the last couple of weeks. Because I played, uh, I, go on. No, but before you reel yes. them off, can I let the people know that you came in today, the first time I've seen you <laughs> since we broke up for yes. Christmas for the holidays, mm-hmm. and you said, Josh, I have played played so many games, I don't know what to do with myself. You kind of <laughs> came in, not revitalized, maybe revitalized in your soul, but you had mm. played so many games, I could almost see them weighing you down. The thing is, I, I played um, about 25, 26 hours of Midnight Suns, which I absolutely love. I shout that game out I, a lot. I think it's very like cheesy and quaint and quirky, and I get why people would absolutely hate all the social aspect of it, but I thought that all the, you know, um, fanboy, just having a charming little time with hanging out with all your best friends and all your superheroes and just it would hang out with Wolverine and getting your bikini and swimming costume and just well, I, I'm fine with all that I yeah. can go with that it's almost like what an, a real X-Men Academy game would be Ooh. like hanging out at the Academy it has those kind of vibes They're obviously very cute and whatever it feels like it was made to have gifts made of it um, but I had a lot of fun with it and obviously the strategy side is the main meat of that game I absolutely love that game however towards the end uh, you do a lot of the same fight over and over again same enemies and stuff and um, it doesn't land that strongly however I was glad that I beat that game and then um, the other stuff that I played, um, I went through, I finished the rest of Callisto Protocol. Um, that thing is abysmal. Stay the hell away from that game. <laughs> the combat is occasionally solid, um, but oh my God, the writing. Oh my God, the final boss. Oh my God, the last sort of two, three hours. Absolute torture. I can't wait to start I, this. I, you're going to love it. I am. And then we're going to do a whole wind up on it. Um, <laughs> but I, I, to the end of that game, I, I, I didn't legitimately get annoyed enough that I'd have to snap the disc, but I did want to snap the disc yeah. because I wanted to take the photo of it just to mark a point in time of like, this is such a letdown and not only is it such a letdown, am I so disappointed, but it's so badly made. It was just so poorly made. Bad level design, bad boss design, bad encounter design, everything. It's terrible. I hate it. <laughs> and so like, I hope they do better. The story DLC, but I was like, I'm going to trade this in. Okay. And there's more value in it being traded in than a snap disc. And I'll just get it later if the story DLC is good. Um, so that put me in a bad mood. And then, I mean, I played a lot. Um, Crisis Core. We could talk about that because you're going to play Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core. I certainly am. And we'll do a, we'll do a, probably a spoiler chat on that because I feel very differently about it in 2022 than I did back in 2005. Right. Uh, and okay. I think Final Fantasy VII as a thing is in such a different place right now than it was back then. Um, however, I will say something very positive. I've, I've played a lot of games, but I don't want to make it all about me. But I do no, want to make it about Atari 50 because that is the most overlooked thing of all last year. Um, Atari 50 is um, Atari, the company's um, archive of 50 years worth of games but it's delivered like in a Talking Heads documentary style. Yeah. So not only have you got all these exclusive interviews with all these various people that were fundamental to the creation of video games, like literally from 1972, the dude that coded Pong is on there. Right. And um, talking about what it was like, you know, trying to get these things off the ground, making games that had two kilobytes of memory, literally, um, you know, what that stuff was like. But you also get to play the games they're talking about. And they've like made all these really cool, or they've unearthed all these really cool prototypes, all these different things that you can just dive into and everything everything loads instantly and it's just a really really brilliant curated package that I would recommend to anyone if you care about video game history it's perfect listen I'm a youngish book you right? are I never played any Atari games you'll play Can more you than you please? think yes is what I was going to ask yes so off the top of my head uh-huh. I couldn't name you any Atari games apart from Pong right okay, so you've maybe got... Space Invaders is that Atari no that was uh, Taito there was a version of it on Atari there we go that's <laughs> as far as my knowledge ends so this is an entire blind spot that uh-huh. I would be interested to play but for you know perhaps the older audience listening mm-hmm. what games are thrown in there like what am I looking forward to when I jump in there as someone who knows nothing well, that's about the, that entire the beauty of, of it because the thing is like there there's occasionally because if you go to like arcades you'll occasionally happen upon something like a missile command or centipede or millipede I don't know if you've played either of them missile command uh, rings some bells okay and um, so you've got games like that and there are things like um, I don't know like things that came later because they would try with like home consoles they try with a handheld called the Lynx maybe you've heard of the Jaguar I've heard of the Lynx and the Jaguar so all the some of the big games that were on those consoles are also in this 
collection, which is just a brilliant thing because you're it's like 1994 in the timeline or whatever, and it's like Sony was coming around with the PlayStation. Yeah, and also another thing is that it includes all these high res. You can zoom into all these like flyers and assets and um, things that they were using to compete with like Sony, uh, sorry, with um, Sega and Nintendo. Yeah, and it's like all this old school game advertising where it's like we're faster than Sonic, we do this better than Mario, and it's like all these great things. The funny thing is, right? Yes, a, a lot of those games and a lot of those systems, I probably um, remember from about 10 years ago when I would religiously watch the angry video game nerd. I Brilliant, imagine yeah. he has covered a lot of that <laughs> stuff. So when I'm playing it, I'll be like, oh, it's from that episode. Well, oh, so I remember when he did this. For me, it's like, um, it's all the stuff that I used to play at arcades when those like vintage arcade, like trade show things would come around. There's one called, um, it's at the Center for Life in the Northeast of England. Yes. Um, I think there was a game 2.0 is what it was called. Um, and they had Missile Command, Pong, uh, Centipede Millipedes. And there's a game called Combat, which includes Tank. I don't know if you played Tank. Nope. But it's like a little red cube with a little turret. And it's like, we're talking about two kilobyte games, it's Tank. Yeah. And um, and you can like shoot each other, multiplayer stuff. Um, there are just tons of things on there. There's a game called Yars Revenge, which I absolutely love. Uh-huh. Um, about like a little bug who's like taking revenge against the bigger bug. And you've got to like sync up your shots and deliver like one missile to take it out. Um, but there's just, uh, this Warlords is really good. Super Breakout you've probably played where you're like the little paddle on the bottom. Mm, no. And you're bouncing a ball up on the thing. You you love, you must have played Breakout at I, some point in life. Mm, I don't know about that. Coded by Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. Mm. Like they mention all this. That's the whole thing. They mentioned so much stuff in this package where it's like, oh, um, Mark Cerny made this. He right. went on to do whatever. Ed Fries, uh, Ed Fries made this stuff. He went on to be an Xbox. Like, you know, Wozniak and uh, Steve Jobs. Like so much gaming history is in this thing. Yeah. And this company was unbelievable for so long. Um, and it charts the rise and fall. There's a whole documentary clip about how many drugs they were doing to, to like try right. and keep coming up with ideas. Of course, yeah. Um, I just think it's it's fascinating. So I just I want to shout that thing out because I yeah. think it's it's the most like beloved or made with love Atari anything for the last like 30 years. No wonder you're knackered with games, Scott <laughs> Telford. You've been through a 50 year voyage, and that's just with one of these games that uh, you've been playing. That's kind of nuts, to be honest. I would massively recommend it though, and it, it, uh, it made me buy an Atari T-shirt. It made me nice. realize how much I've grown up with Atari stuff in various arcades over the years um, and it just made me you know realize their own weird history where they were on top of the gaming scene for so long then they had the whole gaming crash thing this whole idea that they talk about about like when games could be licensed and how you didn't really have exclusives back then yeah. nor did you really have console cycles and everyone just got in on making stuff for the Atari and just tanked the entire medium for a bit um, you know and the dude Nolan Bushnell sold the company to Warner and then he sort of left and it's been like 30 years of like Warner just going like let's do Atari NFTs and whatever and then now um, did Digital Extremes put this package out and they've actually made as well. I will share up about this eventually. They have made new 2022 versions of some classics and oh, um, taking okay. game design lessons from newer games and putting them back into the games from the 70s, which is so cool. Like, it's such a cool idea. Um, so I would say if you have an old school bone in your body or if you just care about gaming history, play Atari 50. It it's sounds great. like such a fascinating package. It's like a good time. A robust package, but I'm going to ignore that advice <laughs> and play the Callisto Protocol instead, oh. I'm afraid, because I got that and Crisis Core Final Fantasy VII re- Reunion Union yeah. for Christmas. And I haven't played either yet, Scott Telford. Mm. And I realized what was missing. What? Why didn't I have the motivation to play them over the break? It's because I didn't have you in front of me telling me <laughs> that they were disappointing. That's the kick up the ass that I need to play games these I days. I feel like it's a public service because it if was- I reset your expectation, don't have any expectations for these games, they are terrible. And then you can go in and go, well, that wasn't terrible. Yeah. That was pretty good. I like that. This maybe is, I'm just maybe it's the right thing to do. I think you're right. That's yeah. what I was waiting for. I needed those expectations reset. Not that they weren't already after the <laughs> uh, sort of response to Callisto, especially. But Crisis Core, that is disappointing to hear that mm. you didn't have a great time with it because I was seeing really good reviews for that over the Christmas period, which obviously made me want to get it in the first place. And now to come back to see you say, eh. That's I think upsetting. Crisis Core plays incredibly well. Um, I like, I love what they've done with the combat. They've sped it up so much, and obviously, it's it was on the PSP. Now it's on a PS5, so there's a huge leap there. And um, the level design still kind of sucks. Um, my main thing, it depends how much you like retcons um, and just that old school mid 2000s approach to world building. You know, in Star in the Star Wars prequels, when it was like, "Hey, Anakin built C-3PO." Yeah. If you like that approach to world, quote unquote, world building and prequel building, then you'll probably love Crisis Core. But if you don't like the idea of like this one thing made all this stuff happen yes. and like when we've clearly just bolted this on because you didn't need this 
um, then you'll just be like, oh, well, that makes it weaker, and that kind of sucks, and I kind of didn't need that, and I kind of wish that wasn't canon. Um, so, yeah, so there's there's a lot of stuff in there that old me was just fascinated by a Final Fantasy game running on PSP. Yeah. Um, that now, uh, under the guise of, like, you know, uh, the next chunk of the Final Fantasy VII remake is coming out, and where does this sit? Is this meant to be canon? We don't really know anymore. Um, the very end of this does tie into a cutscene from the Seven remake, so it, assumedly this is the official, now the official prequel um, to the remake trilogy, but I don't know. They've not really said anything. <laughs> and right now, in my head canon, I'm just like, that doesn't matter. That's from 2005. Right. We don't need that. That's fine. Um, I kind of hope that's how they go. What do you think of all the Final Fantasy VII stuff? I think it's fascinating, mm. man. Like, I, as, as someone who, you know, has oh. not played the original and isn't really up with anything Final Fantasy related at all. I still will. Don't I worry. I don't think you will. It's on the cards. I don't think it is. It's going to happen. Don't you worry, my friend. I think friend. it's a neon white. I think it's getting no. left behind. No, no. Neon white's getting left behind. This <laughs> isn't. Final Fantasy absolutely isn't because we'll get into this in next week's podcast yes. as well. It's a huge year for Final Fantasy. We've got Final Fantasy 16 coming out and we have the second part of the remake um, saga. Mm-hmm. And I loved the Final Fantasy 7 remake, having no ties to the original other than knowing a few plot points and obviously being aware through osmosis about certain scenes, characters, whatever. Mm-hmm. I loved what they did with it. I loved the kind of... Uh, the the daring nature of it, shall we say? <laughs> and I am fully swept up in that ecosystem now. Like I'm, whatever they do, whatever retcons they make, I can't get annoyed by them. I can just be fascinated <laughs> by them while I'm on this wacky journey. Yeah. And this year is my Final Fantasy year. I'm putting that out right now. I'm going to play 16. Didn't play 15 or anything like that. Didn't play 13. Didn't play any of the others. <laughs> I'm playing 16. I'm playing Crisis Core, and I'm playing the second part of Final Fantasy 7 when it comes out at the end of 2023. Okay. So oh my god. I am all in on this. I'll tell you what, I do love, because obviously the numbered ones, like the big numbered ones, like 15, 16, whatever, I forget who I was talking to who still thought they were one giant saga and they were they were refraining from jumping in on six. I've not played the other 15, I can't do it now. Yeah. And I was like, no, 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 they're all separate. I thought that was pretty assumed knowledge at this stage, but maybe it's just not. Um, but yeah, I like that you can just jump into 16 and have a good time with that. That, that game looks like Game of Thrones meets Kaiju Battles, yes. which would be sweet. Every like family has their own giant monster or something, which is sweet. The weird thing is that the way that they're rolling out um, the remake trilogy and then plugging Crisis Core into the in-between parts one and two, even though Crisis Core is an explanation of a plot point from 1997, they want you to know that now, going in to the rest of the game that's being retold yeah. before that plot point's even been addressed in the trilogy. That's so crazy. That's the, the thing stuff that I, I love, man. I think that I do love is that it's making veteran fans and newcomers have these kind of really interesting conversations, which we obviously did a bunch of them like last year, sorry, in 2020, uh, when the remake came out. So I am fascinated by that. I, I can't actually, I'm really looking forward to doing the spoiler cast uh, after you've played Crisis Core because there's going to be so much stuff that you'll just be like, what? Yeah. Why? Who? Which was the same with the Final Fantasy VII remake. Yeah. I remember one of my favorite podcasts we've ever done was in 2020 when we did the spoiler cast with me, you, and Ben. Yeah. You two, obviously, huge fans of the original. Shout out to Benjamin Richardson. Shout out to Benjamin Richardson. What a guy. Like, huge <laughs> fans of Final Fantasy in general. Yeah. And then I was there, like, I have no idea who this cat thing is. Like, what, <laughs> what's going on? Who, how does this fit together? But it didn't even matter because I was viewing it as the first part of something. And yes. obviously, those answers will come. And they were just kind of wacky, chaotic moments in an otherwise really well-told game. You know, mm-hmm. it was, um, it's, it's, it's very rare for me to get on a ride like this, if that makes sense. Normally, I kind of want to know where something is going. I want to have a bit more of a solid footing. But to me, the the joy of this project is having no footing, falling through the... bloody sky or in between dimensions or in the nether realm or wherever just falling falling and having this <laughs> stuff happen to, happen to me I love that there is there's a there's a thing that they do in the in part one of the Final Fantasy 7 remake the one from 2020 where they directly address the fact they have no idea what they're going to do next yeah. where Aerith says uh, just before they go through the portal I'll keep this vague but they go through a portal <laughs> um, and Aerith says what uh, what's on the other side of that portal is boundless terrifying freedom and that's such a meta comment from the devs going like now we've played this card and we broke the actual story we have no idea what we're doing no. and like they've changed I'm sure as it uh, Kazushige Nojima is the guy that's like stepped up who was the originally the uh, scenario director I think he's the new creative director and Tetsuya Nomura has like stepped down or something he was the Kingdom Hearts guy that, um, Nomura is still involved but I don't think he's calling the shots anymore and so much of Final Fantasy 7 remake part one was so Nomura it was so Kingdom yep. Hearts it was so just all over the place and I'm there for it if you're building to something I don't know if I believe they're building to 
something anymore. Um, I think that's what throws me off. And when I went back to Crisis Core, when you view a 2005 Tetsuya Nomura game through a 2022 lens, it's like, oh dear God, how the hell <laughs> did this guy get so far? Um, and so when that dude is like, you know, set things in motion, I just, I don't know anymore. Yeah. I'm definitely there along for the ride. And a lot of the marketing has been, even when it was revealed in 2016, was like, you know, they are coming back. Will you join us for the journey and whatever? It's like the, the greatest journey ever or something. And yeah. I'm like, it's definitely the journey, not the destination. Because I think we're <laughs> going to hit a wall in a few more years time. It is. It's such a strange one. And it is an interesting one to talk about. Because mm. like I said, I've never been interested in Final Fantasy before. And yet when I saw the trailer for, uh, you know, the second part of the remake, I was like, I got excited, man. Cool. I got like really hyped for it. I've never felt that way about this franchise. So for me, I can never hate what they're doing with this game mm. uh, in this series because it's the first time it's got me in. And I, love, <laughs> I, and I love being here. And now I can finally have these impenetrable conversations with Final <laughs> Fantasy fans that I've been avoiding for 20 plus years of my life. Just me knocking at your window when Pretty you're much. Trying, to, uh, trying to sleep. I feel like um, the thing is, like, we'll, we'll wrap the Final Fantasy stuff after this next sentence. But I do want to know, like, yeah, what do you think of Crisis Core? And then when you'll play the original Final Fantasy VII, are you waiting till you've played the whole new trilogy? Because the way that they're rolling this out, they almost want you to have a working knowledge of the original yeah like the whole thing with the remake trilogy is that it's actually secretly a sequel yeah like the whole thing with dimensions and everything else so you're you're better equipped for what's to come if you know everything that's already been out before i think that's why they remastered crisis core yeah it's just like a weird business bet that not enough people have psps and sony are doing a terrible job with ps plus so they're not going to put on the playstation plus service so whatever where so like but they want you to know the original seven and and crisis core Sorry, uh, I don't know if, I, if you're going to do that stuff. No, I'm not. I don't believe because, it. Because like I say, I like the mystery of it. I like not knowing what these characters are or mm. what roles they have. And then it's fascinating, you know, take some of the parts of the original seven remake that were expanded going back to see characters who by all accounts had a small role in the original game, mm. like getting fleshed out, getting mm. these extra character arcs and stuff. Like to me, that's, I, that's almost more exciting after the fact to right. get this trilogy or whatever it is kind of complete or at least mostly complete mm. and then go back and figure out exactly what was different because I wouldn't have done that if I had, um, you know, years to prepare for this game. If, if it was like 2010, mm. you know, and you asked me to get into Final Fantasy VII then, I definitely would have because mm. I imagine it's incredible having this connection to the franchise from childhood, knowing yeah. Final Fantasy VII inside out, all of its plot beats, all of its um, extraneous material like Crisis Core. 25 in, years of it 25 now. years Horrible. of it. And then having all of that shattered with this new project. But unfortunately, I can't cram those 25 years <laughs> into like six months before the second part comes you out. I'm not play, even going to try. Play a 45-hour game, Josh. No, I could. I could, but it's it's more the connection to it. It's mm. not that I don't want to play the game or don't think it's going to hold up. It's that I, I won't have the same prolonged connection to it. And that's no. not even a bad thing. It's just I think that might be integral to what you get out of this new series. It definitely will, but that's almost like a byproduct of, like, there's no escaping that. Whereas no. I think that they want you to know what they've done before. Right. There's so many little seeds in the rem in remake part one where it's referencing events that happened before, Sephiroth's consciousness, everything else. Like, they, they kind of want you to have that. And I feel like Crisis Core is their way of saying, like, we're directly giving you the previous material because everything going forward is going to be so different and you're going to get even less of that if you don't know what the other stuff was. But I guess we'll find out in Rebirth. That's true. Um, and there you go. Crisis Core will brush me up on some things. So. It's, oh, I I can't even, I can't even, oh, we'll have to wait and see. I just, I can't fathom the way they're telling the story and I don't believe they can actually pull it off anymore, but right. I guess we'll see. Um, I was going to say something else about um, Final Fantasy stuff. Do you think you'll play Ever Crisis, the other Final Fantasy game that's also coming this year? I, I, what, I don't know what that is. What is, what is that? <laughs> they are remaking Final Fantasy VII again. Okay. Um, but they're remaking Final Fantasy VII um, again, but it's more like the PS1 one in terms of the camera angles and the character models. However, <laughs> I don't. I think these are all in-game purchases. You can switch out any character. So if you want to have like Aerith during the bombing run at the very beginning, you can just put her in there. Okay. There's a lot of like gacha mechanics and a lot of like weird Square Enix BS in that game. Right. And the trailer, it was like another chance for a remake. Ooh, yeah. And they were like making seven again. So a lot of people always only wanted that in the first place, just a reskinned PS1 Final Fantasy seven. 
However, now it's like this weird mobile game that I think it's getting a Switch release. I'm not going to do it, and here's why, right? Because I've <laughs> already got... Man. I'm a sane man. I've already, <laughs> I value my time <laughs> in my sanity. No, I don't. I've already got Crisis Core. Yeah. I've already got Final Fantasy 16. I've already got Final Fantasy 7 Part 2. And <laughs> then I've also got the PS1 version of Final Fantasy 7 yeah. that's on my PlayStation Classic. I've got the <clears> PlayStation... Uh, four version, I guess, of Final Fantasy VII that has been like upscaled, but it's still the PlayStation that's 1 what you should version. Play. And I've got the other version of that that's also on PlayStation Plus. That's like a remastered <laughs> version where you can like skip up the battles and stuff. That is the PS4 one, but and, yes. And then I've got the pixel remasters that are coming out at some point as well. So that's too much. It's too much. I, the... wanna, I can't do all of that. I know it's the Final Fantasy year, but that's like yeah. a million games. You're not, you're not wrong. I mean, collectively, that's about 500 hours of game. So it's, yes. there's, there's a lot there, especially when 100% stuff. Um, we should transition into news things because we, we talked a lot about Final Fantasy right there. Certainly, and it's yeah. going to be a year of Final Fantasy. But speaking of Square Enix, and um, we'll just run down some news points. One news thing I was going to talk about, or we're going to talk about, is um, Square Enix's president, Yosuke Matsuda, just kind of recommitting to blockchain stuff, NFT stuff, crypto stuff, um, doing a whole statement at the start of the year. He did one last year saying that they wanted to invest in NFTs going forward. And obviously last year was an absolute tire fire for NFT stuff. Um, he's done exactly the same thing this year. Um, and he said that going forward, Square Enix are most focused on blockchain entertainment. And then hilariously, he says, following the excitement and exhilaration that surrounded NFTs and the metaverse in 2021 and 20, uh, 2021, 2022 was a year of great volatility in blockchain, the blockchain-related space, yeah, citing the FTX collapse of the $32 billion in crypto that disappeared overnight. Um, but still, they want to get into blockchain stuff. They still think that's the future. Some sort of owning a visual of a thing rather than the thing itself. I'm going to stop you right there, right? Please do. Because no, 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 no. Well, I'm not, no, 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 no. I do not care if Mr. Square Enix is telling me that they're doubling down on NFTs. We are not talking about NFTs in 2023, but <sighs> we're talking about things that we're leaving in the past. The we are leaving them in the past. I don't care if this guy says that he loves a bit of the volatility. He's doubling <laughs> down on the blockchain and Web 3.0 and whatever other buzzwords they want to throw out. Nah, 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 nah. nah. If, if he wants to do that, I'm leaving Square Enix behind in 2022 as but well. But it's the era of Final Fantasy. What if they put more blockchain tech in the, <sighs> in the games you want to play? Then it's not the era of Final Fantasy. I know. Then it's gone. I don't want it. And I feel like even what world does this dude live in where there's excitement and exhilaration surrounding NFTs and the metaverse? I know what world. Ever. His own ass. His own <laughs> <laughs> Up his own hole. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll just, we'll not go into that. We'll see what happens with that stuff going forward. There's a lot of goodwill around Square Enix right now in terms of the games that are coming out. And I don't need Mr. Matsuda coming in there going like, can we put, can we charge you for that picture of Aerith? Here's the thing, right? Go there on. is, there's a lot of goodwill around the upcoming the game releases Square anyway, Enix yeah. games, right? Mm -hmm. But they're coming off potentially, and not to just make this a whole let's slag off Square Enix podcast, <laughs> but they're coming off perhaps their worst year ever. Like yeah, the yeah. games that they put out, stuff like Babylon's Fall, you know, came and went, made no splashes. The stuff that they announced, the like quiet Forspoken, man. The, yeah, the Quiet Man, <laughs> the stuff that they announced, like Forspoken, yep. became a laughing stuff. They were talking about NFTs. They sold off all of their Western developers, like Crystal Dynamics and IDOS Montreal and stuff, to uh, I think it was Embracer Group or maybe yes, someone so, else. Yeah. And now they have just got the uh, like the Japanese studios and stuff. And it's like, yes, they've had this tumultuous year and they've got some great games lined up. But man, if they're continuing with BS like this, like it makes me wonder what happens when all of this Final Fantasy stuff is done this year. Like, mm. what have you got for 2024? Like, where where do you go from here as a company? Because if you're still talking about this in the year of our Lord 2020. <laughs> I don't know what the business plan is long term. I don't know what's going on there. I feel like they've um, expanded and blown up all the Final Fantasy VII stuff because I've long referred to Final Fantasy VII as like a cottage industry within Square Enix because it just is this massive thing. Hence why they've remade it like twice. Um, or they're going to be remaking it again across this year. Um, yeah, I think that they are doubling down on that stuff because that is their easiest cash cow. Like no one really says anything bad about Final Fantasy VII. It's almost untouchable yeah. because of that 25-year history. You can kind of do whatever you want to it. Um, in terms of the monetization side of it, and people will largely go with it. Like, I'll probably check out Ever Crisis. I don't think I'm going to play through the thing because I don't like how they're changing characters around. But like you said, what the hell do you do after that? I mean, like, it's going to be another five, six years until Final Fantasy 17 or whatever it is. Um, but I mean, I feel like Square Enix, they put out so many random RPGs and everything. Some of the stuff that came out this year, I love Triangle Strategy. That was almost one of my games of the year. Yeah. Um, and that just felt like it came from a different mentality altogether from like the likes of what um, Yosuke Matsuda is saying. And so I don't 
know. I don't know if that, if like internally, if that mentality wins out, who are just like the guys that are making Harvest Stella and Triangle Strategy, who are just like, can we just make some games? Like, yeah. can we just actually put some stuff out that's like nice. It's nicely made. It's mechanically sound. Triangle Strategy is extremely well written. Yes. Like very, very well written, which like contrast against Forspoken, which is them trying to get into the Western market in the most algorithmic way possible. And it just falling flat on its face. Like maybe they just need to sack that stuff off and re-embrace their Japanese roots and do JRPGs and that kind of stuff. They should, right? They really should. They're giving me big Konami in 2015 vibes where they're a company clearly in a transitionary stage Mm. and they still have some excellent games and excellent developers under their belt, you mm. know, the equivalent of the, the like a Phantom Pain or even like a Pez at the time, mm. you know, they've got Final Fantasy, they've got these smaller games that, you know, prove what they could be, whether they want to be that studio anymore, that's mm. what I doubt, because why wouldn't they do it? They are moving away from it, and I would love all of those games to be the rule rather than the exception to the rule, but True. the more sporadic those releases become, the more they feel like a phantom pain, you know. Yeah, that's true. They've got the new Dragon Quest as well. I was just thinking of like the biggest things they have, like Dragon Quest 13 or whatever number we're on to, 12 maybe. Um, I remember the logo is like this really like cool, fiery, it seems like they're doing like a dark sequel kind of logo for it, but Dragon Quest is humongous. Mm. So that feels like something else that they can do, but it's a very safe bear. And um, yeah, I mean, the thing is like, for, I'd be um, if Forspoken lands well, then cool. But I feel like somewhere along the way, they had some sort of business meeting of like, fine, we'll do a new thing. We'll do a new thing from the ground up, but it's got to be this safe. Um, it's got to have this style of combat and all the numbers fly off and all these RPG mechanics and it has to have this style of dialogue because this is MCU style and this is what's going to work. And it's starting to fall apart already. Like from the initial trailer, people weren't that bothered about it. And I feel like that thing is going to fall flat on its face and all the naysayers internally at Square Enix get to go, told you, see, mm. it was never going to work. We need to stick to franchises and then it'll just be the same stuff over and over again going forward yeah which is endemic of a lot of media across the board and um, but i feel like forspoken is about to prove them right on a very large scale because that's a very expensive game flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is brought to you by Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it just makes hiring all in one place so easy because you just get unparalleled access to job seekers. Plus, listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash WCG. Just go to Indeed.com slash WCG right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash WCG. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed. I hope not. I hope that's like... (laughs) I don't even want it to do that well. It doesn't look that great anyway. It's true. I want this to be like the Avatar, the way of the water for this year. (laughs) You know, something that everyone kind of wrote off like, oh, who cares? Mm. Who wants this? And then it comes out and does really well and people kind of like it. That would be the best case scenario for me, but whether it is a... whether it I would would love a new IP to do very well. Like, I would absolutely adore that. Like, I... uh, It's just everything about Forspoken just seems like it's about to hit the floor. Yes. uh, And then the playable demo only really concrete... only cemented that for me. I was like, this is actually pretty unplayable. 
console. So we'll see. Um, but in terms of another major talking point, Nintendo, we'll talk about the state of Nintendo uh, going into this year. Now, it seems like, um, according to various insiders, there's not going to be a Nintendo Switch Pro. There's not going to be an incremental step up. Um, there's a little bit more about that in a, in a second. But um, Digital Foundry's John Linneman says that at one point internally, from what they can understand, talking to various different developers, is that there was a mid-generation Switch update planned at one point, and that's no longer happening. And um, Whatever Nintendo do next is going to be actual next-generation hardware. Um, he does say that some sort of Switch 2 might happen, but it won't be in 2023. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's just some sort of legacy system, which maybe implies they're not going to do backwards compatibility physically. Um, but to roll in some comments from um, Piers Harding Rolls, who works for Ampere Analysis, this comes this is written up by IGN, um, who just says that overall there are plans, but there are they are under wraps until 2024. Right. So it seems like the rest of this year is just standard Switch stuff, um, or at least Switch OLED stuff. There was a um, Tears of the Kingdom, the next Zelda. There was a um, Tears of the Kingdom OLED Switch that leaked. There was a picture of it. So it seems like I was thinking that they would do a new Switch with the next Mario, with the next Zelda. That's just not the case. Yes. And I guess Tears of the Kingdom has been in development for so long. It's five years, six years now? Yeah, man. It's sixth year since it's Breath of the Wild. What are we doing on this earth? <laughs> um, so it feels like that long in development after it's been delayed twice, yeah. I guess they just have to put it out on the Switch. 100%. Man. Yeah. Like a couple of things to this. It's interesting that uh, John Lidman, you know, talks about how they internally heard about the Switch mid-refresh. Mm. Switch Pro, for lack of a better term, because mm-hmm. that does kind of support what Schreier was saying a few years ago. You know, he went out and he was saying, like, I've heard about the Switch Pro, it's definitely happening. And then obviously it kind of wasn't happening. And I know. He was like, and he's very rarely wrong. His sources are usually accurate. So it makes sense then to know now that they were kind of talking about it mm. and it kind of was the plan, but then got canned in favor of, you know, a proper next bit of kit. Mm-hmm. And I want that next bit of kit. At this point, Same. I wouldn't even want a Switch Pro. Like, I would have wanted a Switch Pro about two years ago before right. the OLED came out. Now, it's been long enough from mm. the original Switch, in my opinion, to start ramping up to the next big thing. And for me, it makes sense to go out this year with Tears of the Kingdom. Have that be the last big Switch game, mm. Switch OLED game. You know, don't take the focus away from that with the announcement of new hardware. And then once that's out at the end of the year, or whenever it comes out, mm-hmm. uh, then get the ball rolling early 2024 with the announcement of new hardware and then get something new for next year. To me, that's the ideal rollout, but Nintendo have never done what I want. <laughs> so who knows if that's what will actually happen. That was another, that was some other uh, source I'm, I'm remembering for my last couple of weeks uh, on holiday did say that I, I'm pretty sure that uh, Tears of the Kingdom was the last major game for the Switch. Right. And that will be the, the last sort of hurrah, which is kind of poetic. Like you open on Breath of the Wild, you end with Tears of the Kingdom um, in terms of the big Nintendo first party stuff. And then maybe you wait and do the next Mario on the next Switch, on the next system. I would. The thing that's really weird though is that they have the Nintendo Switch, the Nintendo Switch Lite, and the Nintendo Switch OLED. And they're all selling very well. Like hmm. they all sort of like, you know, continually outdo like Xbox by a considerable margin. So it's like, when do you, as a as Nintendo, when do you choose to cut this off and um, this revenue stream and replace it with something else? How much do they do backwards compatibility? Um, and just what do you aim for? Like, I don't think they can compete in the tech space. Like in terms of 4K 60, 4K 120, I don't think they care. Um, the only thing that I think they need to address is some sort of baseline. Cause it's like any time, any game from like last year to 2022 or 2021 gets a Switch port. It's a terrible version of that game. Um, maybe they, you know, scale it all the way back that it at least it's playable. Like Sifu is solid, yeah. but it's still very fuzzy. It still doesn't look very good. So I don't know. For me, I just want a very solid Nintendo system. I don't need them to have AAA Naughty Dog graphics. Yes. Like I just want a playable, solid tech thing. I would take a Switch Pro because you could just change the innards a little bit and just give us the 4K60 system. Well, here's the thing, right? Or just a 1080 60 Conceptually, system. I agree. Mm. I don't want a Switch Pro but I would definitely take a Switch 2. Like, I don't right, think they right. need to reinvent the wheel. They don't need to do a Wii U thing where they kind of mm. change things and kind of not. I genuinely think you can keep more or less the same design, but just beef up the internal components a considerable amount. Like, yeah. I, I want it to be handheld. I want it to be a hybrid system where you can also dock it. I want to keep what they have with the Switch intact. Mm. I just need it to be more powerful. Yeah, it doesn't need to be the same level of an Xbox Series X or a PS5 or a high-end PC, but it needs to be considerably <laughs> more powerful than what they have now. Otherwise, they're going to get left behind even more than they are. Mm -hmm. And for my money, I worry about it stifling innovation on their first-party games. You know, I want Mm. to see a considerable leap up compared to uh, when we look at the next Zelda, you know, whatever comes after Tears of the Kingdom. Mm -hmm. When we look at the next Mario, it doesn't need to be like, have ray tracing or be like the most cutting-edge thing around, but I want to see something 
way more powerful than what we get now, just so we can kind of compete with the kind of baseline that we're now used to with the next gen. You know, mm. we're used to um, 4K, even if it's upscaled. We're used to 60 frames per yeah. second across the board, more or less. And now, even when a game comes out on PS5 that doesn't have a performance mode, it mm. doesn't even have an uncapped frame rate that tries to get 60, we're a little bit disappointed. Totally. I don't go back to my Nintendo Switch now because it does feel antiquated. There right. are still good games coming out for it, still good-looking games coming out for it, but mm. I feel like I'm leaving a lot of things in the past this year, Scott, and I feel like I already <laughs> left that in the past the year before. So my answer to you when you say how do they keep the sales of the Nintendo Switch going, to me it's simple. You just release another Switch. You release the Switch yeah. 2 and you replace it, and hopefully those sales should just migrate over potentially. That's a weird thing that, like, the whatever we get next year, like, yeah, do you carry the branding on? Like, I mean, it, I don't know. Like, it's the idea that it's not a Switch 2, it's the next thing. Therefore, like, the idea is that the hardware is different, the form factor is different. It maybe does something that we can't even imagine it's going to do. I mean, no one saw cardboard VR coming from them either, so it's no. like, whatever the hell they want to do going forward. Um, but yeah, like you said, my thing is the game side of it, because I feel like the Switch has got a hell of a library overall, and it's 2022 was solid. Kirby was incredible, and there are things like Metroid Dread that, like, that are like recent releases that are just you need to play this um, alongside the Breath of the Wilds, the Mario Odyssey. Um, but there is still a lot of time in between those releases. They're sort of getting like two, three, four releases a whole year or something. Um, and I kind of want a, a tighter turnaround for those franchises, or maybe to launch something else that's new. Yeah. Like their latest new IP is Splatoon, and even that's ten years old now. So. I am um, <laughs> to be all Mr. New Things. All he ever wants <laughs> is the new stuff. But um, I say that and I, I'll take the Metroid Prime trilogy and Metroid Prime 4 and stuff. Yeah, you will. Um, but yeah, I'm curious what Nintendo do. I feel like Xbox are continually in this weird flagging place and that, like, that lets them continue to be in like, like, they keep jockeying for first and second place with PlayStation. But um, they've had a hell of a generation so far. It's crazy that we're six years into the Switch. It is. Um, and we probably are ready for an update and definitely in terms of um, the hardware side of it. Um, speaking of of things taking a while and games um you know coming out every now and then nice. jason schreier barely a segue <laughs> jason schreier um did tweet out um on january yeah january 6th um saying fun fact video game production cycles have gotten so long that if a big budget game studio started working on a brand new project today it would likely be for the playstation 6 yes um jason schreier was is a writer for bloomberg he used to write for kotaku um just a general insider very knowledgeable human um yeah i don't know how much i believe that but I, obviously he said it very Seriously. I believe it, man, because I saw a lot of devs responding to it being mm. like, yes, and it'll take even longer if you're an indie developer. <laughs> and then I think Jason actually followed up being like, yeah, if you're an indie developer, you're probably looking at PS7. That's how oh long God. some of those games take. And I just do So we're never is... getting we're never getting an actual PS5 game. We'll get an actual you know PS5 what? game on the PS6. Well, we'll get some PS5 games that would have because if you look at the things that are in development, right? Mm. Like we've had God of War in development, the sequel, Ragnarok since 2018. Mm -hmm. We had Horizon in development since 2017, right? There would have been things after that yes. that would be specifically made for the PlayStation mm -hmm. 5. So I don't... that This doesn't make me worry about that. Okay, okay. It just does make me worry about what developers are focusing on. And this, again, will tie into what you were talking there about <laughs> originality and sequels and stuff. Because mm -hmm. I think you might say in the tweet, like, if you're building... Or some, some, some of the developers that were replying, like, if you're building a new IP, it's going to take you, you know... We, we all, already know it's like four, five, six years to make. If mm. you're doing a sequel, even that, you're looking at three or four years in terms of the turnaround for them. So these games are taking longer. And I think that's kind of like the... What we, what I personally have to come to terms with right now, that, right. you know, the next time Naughty Dog makes a game, like, we're looking years down the line. Oh we're God. completely out of the era where Naughty Dog could split in two and make The Last of Us with one team and mm. Uncharted 3 with another. Now it's like a thousand developers making The Last of Us Part 3 and it'll oh. take seven years to make, you know? I think I hate that. I think that pains me to my core. Because the thing is, like, if you compare, I thought you were going to go back further. I thought you were going to talk about the, the rollouts that Naughty Dog and the likes of Rockstar had in the 2000s. Like, yeah. if you look at the comparison of how much Rockstar put out in the 2000s versus how much they put out in the 2010s or how much they've put out now. Um, and you can do the same thing with Naughty Dog, like the entire Jack trilogy, the Uncharted, first Uncharted, no, first two Uncharted um, for the 2000s. Um, and obviously, Rockstar, there's everything from Midnight Club to Smugglers Run to GTA and table tennis. Um, there's a lot. 
And so that's just never, quote unquote, never going to happen again yeah. unless something happens with the speed of development. But it's it's that weird. I would love to have more information on what actually clogs up development. What actually is the thing that takes the brass tacks time? Because I assume it's render. I assume it's yeah. literally rendering detail. Um, and some of that stuff can be expedited and sped up with, um, you know, Unreal 5. There's a lot of auto-generating stuff. Speed Tree was a big deal when it could just generate a forest for you in the early 2010s. Like, there are things like that that I have to assume combat this point but they're going to come in time but i do think while some of the tech might be making it faster i think later on in the thread like try was talking about how part of the length of game development now is because a lot of studios won't crunch Mm. and for me that's that's (laughs) that's the trade-off right like i'm happy to wait for me personally i'm happy to wait a couple of years more if it means like the games are made in a good environment yeah, because people yeah, are living healthier lives 100% you look yeah. at the quote unquote golden age of Rockstar where they were turning around these games like even as late as Grand Theft Auto 4 and Red Dead Redemption 1 which came out with only within a couple of years of each other like that would have been hell for the developers working on it we had the mm. big Rockstar fallout of like the I think it was the big Rockstar wives thing about you know that was their, EA I think I want to say it was Rockstar. Maybe it was both. You know? There was that, definitely an e, there was definitely an EA Wives thing as well. This yeah. is the thing. It was like a lot of different. Kind of, it had a big knock on effects. I think it was for the original Red Dead Redemption right, right, one right. that I'm referring to. Anyway, yeah, like all of these games were made under such tight deadlines with mm-hmm. like crazy turnaround. That if that's relaxing, mm-hmm. but it means that we get you know longer development cycles. Ultimately, I think it's a good thing because you're right about it, that. By the way, 2010. Right. Yeah. Yep. 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 And I just think that ultimately, if that is an effect, that is that is a step in the right direction. Yes, it no, might it mean fewer turnaround, but it hopefully will mean better games, healthier environments, and a gaming industry that people actually want to work for. Yeah, the thing sense. is, like, I... Maybe this is a this is like a potentially weird question, but it's like how how big in detail do we need games to be? Mm-hmm. Like how much of that is just an extension of the capitalistic mentality to just do better, do more, do greater graphics over and over and over again? If there's one thing that I learned from going back to games from 1972, mm-hmm. it's that gameplay has always been king. Like Missile Command is still badass, and that thing came out in like 76 or something. Um, for me, like I would rather the actual scale of production was made way more manageable because I do feel like it's inhuman, hence the crunch conditions, to make it work. And the, the, the um, knock-on effect is time. But if we're saying that, I mean, well, maybe we're not overall saying this as a mainstream yet, um, that you know we're happy enough to wait for things and maybe we want things to be um, quicker, why can't the production be smaller? Like I remember a really old video by Stephanie Sterling saying that we as a people didn't say we want these giant over-the-top, oh my God, hyper-detailed leaf games. Yeah. We just want games. And somewhere along the way, the industry said, well, it needs to be shinier and more lifelike. And look at these facial renders and all this kind of stuff. And those things are obviously worthwhile. Yeah. But are they essential? I don't think so. I, I fully agree with you, right? And I love your work and I love Stephanie <laughs> Sterling's work as well. But annoyingly, I am one of those people who love you do the love shiny leaves. And I, I wish I didn't, man. <laughs> and I wish I didn't. And obviously, I don't love it to the detriment of a game's, you know, development mm. or a game's quality or a game's you know, scope creep or anything like that. But I do like that this is an industry that pushes that stuff forward. Yes, same. I don't want that to be the exclusive way to make games. I don't want everything to be a Last of Us Part 2 spectacle or a Red Dead Redemption 2 spectacle. And I do fully agree with you that going forward, we do need like a sliding scale when Mm. it comes to the scale of games. Like I want to see tighter you know, eight-hour experiences yeah. that come out within a few years sitting alongside these 100, 200-hour epics. And I would like to get that mentality, but at the same time, I'm also one of those guys who's like, I want to see a shiny leaf. I want to see a more detailed rock. I want to see that ear cartilage shine in the sun. I never want to see I don't ear know cartilage ever again. <laughs> I never want to see it. What you were saying about gameplay being king, man, like, I totally get it, mm. but I, I, I hear that. And I'm like, it it can be, you know, not for me necessarily. But I think it, it depends what they, the thing is. I'm, I I just want to see what creatives want to put out. And I think that like maybe they, that's the thing. If any uh, team of creatives want to dedicate eight to ten years of their life making a particular thing, absolutely more power to you. And the end result of that can be phenomenal. Can be a Red Dead Redemption too. Um, you know, but it can also crash and burn and be. I mean, Cyberpunk got there, yeah. but the, when Cyberpunk first uh, arrived, it was in a hell of a state. And I think that there's a weird like knock on effect of like you're taking. My 
imagine 10 years of your life on one thing. Yes. Like that's crazy, it's really. Nuts. And you can turn around so much more, so many more ideas. Like I would much rather, and completely subjectively, I would much rather have 10 smaller games from Naughty Dog that take maybe one or two years to turn around or even just a couple of smaller pixel indie things yeah. from them, uh, indie style things, than waiting six to eight to 10 years for another sequel of a franchise that doesn't even need to be franchised in the first place. I want both. I want mm. both. I want some developers to work on those big games because, you know, if you look at the... Cre- I was, I've was been reading a lot about The Last of Us TV show because yeah. obviously that's going to debut next week. Um, next week. And, you know, it, it made me... I was reading a Hollywood Reporter interview that kind of went into the process of getting The Last of Us made, the first Last mm. of Us game, and how Neil Druckmann had this idea while he was in school. And it was his passion project, right? And when he finally got a chance to work on it, it was his um, goal to... Make it how he wanted it to be made. He thought that he was only going to get one chance to make a game mm. in his life, and he's working, as he says it in the article, on his dream game. He needs it to be right. So you put a lot of time into it. Mm. You know, the team as a whole put so much time into it, all of the intricate details, and then it came out, and it was arguably the best game of all time yes. when it came out. Mm. And I'm like, that's why I think I'm okay with waiting seven years for the next Grand Theft Auto, or, or whether it's a sequel, whether it's an UIP. If it's someone's dream game, take as long as you need. The only time where I think it's not worth it is when it is a sequel for sequel's sake. If it's just, you know, it's, if you're spending 10 years on a game that nobody really is passionate about, like mm. The Avengers by Square Enix, that's when I'm like, yes, your time would be better served on 10 smaller or 10 indie games. But if it's a, if it's a passion project in that way, mm-hmm. like for me, I'm, 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 take, I'm, I'm, I'm of the opinion of take as long as you want on the year no, college, I, you know? I am too, but the, the difference there for me is that he wasn't working on The Last of Us 1 for five, six, eight years. Like, they had Uncharted 3 in 2011 and then Last of Us in 2013. I know that Last of Us 1 wasn't turned around in two years. There would have been crossover there. But the scale of production matched the time frame. Right. Like, in a a more humane way. Like, there's something about committing to a decade of development and then it can just get canned eight years in um, or whatever that just feels crazy. And and it's almost like you have to be okay with the long-term thing. You have to commit to these long-term goals because that just is the industry. And I guess my point is it doesn't need to be Mm -hmm. because it's only become the industry really in the last 10 years um, in terms of those really elongated dev times that are entirely dependent, assumedly, on rendering and graphical quality and just up-resing everything over and over and over again. Um, and if, if games like, you know, Sifu and Tunic and whatever have proven that, you know, those things can do really, really well, um, even things like Among Us, it's just like gameplay is king. Like, like it always has been. Um, it's an interesting thing because I think, I think we're like both right. I agree with you as well. Yes. Like certain titles are just worth, oh my God, you guys, like Rockstar, Red Dead Redemption 2 was like the most like, you know, triple indie game ever because it had an indie developer's soul. It had an, an indie dev's uh, script writing philosophy and in terms of the thematics and just how much time they dedicate to walking slowly through a field carrying a bag of grain because that's what they did in the early 1900s. Yeah. That's great. But with like AAA visuals and everything, but they are such an anomaly. And I don't, I remember that whole thing when Red Dead 2 came out where it was like a thousand indie devs just cried out in silence or something. Yes. Like the Star Wars quote, because now they have to try and match that. And it's like, you don't, you really don't. You definitely don't. But I think it's, I think it's a testament to how diverse games are Mm. and, you know, the amount of different genres and styles and everything that you get from this medium that I think what you want out of games is so personal. Like you Mm. again said, gameplay is king and you singled out, uh, Sifu and uh, Tunic. And two, the Beautiful Missile Command. Two really, and the Beautiful Missile Command. Two great games, right, yes. that I had on my Game of the Year list last year. But for me, if the entire industry was just made up of Sifus and uh, Tunics, mm. I wouldn't be into it anywhere near as much as I am with these AAA games because I, I, I just I get something from those AAA games that I can't get anywhere else Mm. like for me for as much as i would still enjoy the industry it is the likes of the red dead redemption 2s the last of us part 2s the god of war ragnaroks like those big production games um that really elevate it for me because they have the spectacle with the narrative depth Mm -hmm. i suppose and like i look at my favorite games of all time and a lot of them yeah there are some indies in there for sure but a lot of them are those big budget spectacle games and it's like if if the industry moved away from that 
Maybe I would move away from the industry. I oh. don't know if I would, the but I probably the, would. The industry that you just described, what if everything was was like Sifu, like Tunic, like in terms of the... Because I'm thinking of them as scale of production. I'm not necessarily saying that they are indie games. It's just that idea of a smaller scale of production that's more focused. The turnaround time isn't a lifetime, isn't a decade, or isn't you know, upwards of five years. That's the gaming industry of the 2000s and the early 2010s. Like that was when, to me, things were way more manageable and way more ideas got off the ground. That's, to me, why the PlayStation 2 era was the greatest era we'll ever get. Because right. that was the perfect match of, um, you know, AAA production. It wasn't even AAA, it wasn't even a thing back then. But the upper echelon of game development, um, you know, was more affordable to just greenlight whatever ideas were coming out. And you got the Metal Gear Solids and you got all the wider ideas that came from the PlayStation 2 era. To me, I would go more towards that, like, and, and more of a, um, a free market of ideas and not knocking 10 things back because the one safe thing needs to get through. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's hard because <laughs> I, I agree with a lot of what you've said, but when I look at the PS2 era, for instance, you know, I love that era, mm. but it's not my favorite era. If I right. look at, like, if I conceptualize my top 20 games of all time mm. in my head, a lot of them are going to be new releases. Like I said, a lot they of them might are going to be, gonna too, be yeah. Red Dead 2, Last of Us 2, these games that I keep mentioning. And yes, there are going to be um, other games on there that are, you know, old, like mm. Fallout New Vegas, for instance, but I look at something like Fallout New Vegas, I look at something like even Knights of the Old Republic, and they feel like anomalies of their time. They feel like they stood out in an era mm. that that wasn't kind of um, built around them. Like Fallout New Vegas obviously is a franchise game, but that is like a hardcore RPG through and through in terms of its writing, and nothing mm. around it really at the time was doing that. You had other RPGs that were big up, like Skyrim yeah, came out Mass Effect a couple years afterwards. Mass Effect came out, but is, for as much as I love Mass Effect, even that doesn't have the complexity in the choices, for instance, that I think New Vegas did. No, that's so true. That, that's where I kind of look at it. You know, mm -hmm. the PS2 era had a lot, and that is great, but I need those special nuggets. I think for me, it's like you see, you know, there's so much talent. Like you said, there's so many bodies being thrown at these things. Like there's so many bodies being thrown at the reboot or the remake of something or the, the sequel to something. And it's always that idea of how do we need this thing? How essential is this thing? And just for me, like having, you know, had so many decades in the industry, just being so curious, what would Naughty Dog do? On or a handful of people from Naughty Dog, what might they put together um, at, a, at a game jam? What, what might they put together, um, you know, which is like a weekend of development or something? Or what might they put together over a few months? And could that be put out for a reduced price? And But you get to see the ingenuity of the, maybe the, the art director takes the lead on it. Like there yeah. was that whole thing with the um, the lead art director on uh, Journey went and made Abzu. And it's that whole thing of like splitting off and doing something else. And you get a lot of that, like in terms of um, various veteran devs making smaller teams. But why can't they be endorsed by the, the big, the bigger teams? Why can't they have the... If, if, if the Naughty Dog label was on something smaller, like, you know, maybe a return to platforming or something, but something innovative uh, in terms of game mechanics, that would be so cool. Yeah. That would be so cool for that studio. It's so cool for PlayStation. And you can put it out on PlayStation Plus, like, you know, and get it in front of people. I just think that's a more innovative, interesting, thriving industry than this lumbering waiting so long for something that is, and then so much more is riding on it when it finally comes around. It's true. I'm not even disagreeing with you necessarily. I do want the things you want too. I just think that there is such an, a, a series of open goals that they just miss because they want the big thing That's over it, right? and over and over again. And it's, yeah, like, like I, again, I, I agree with a lot of what you said there. And when I say I don't want an industry that is just the likes of Tunic and Seafood, mm. these kind of like potentially smaller scale games, but still incredible games. Yeah. I also don't want an industry that is just, you know, The Last of Us Part Two level productions mm. over and over again to the detriment of those smaller, uh, not less ambitious, but certainly tighter games, more experimental yeah, games, yeah. you know, less safe bets, as you put it earlier. Totally. On. I need the balance, man, but I, I just... It's, it's interesting it's, where we're at because there's so it. much money in it. Um, I mean, there's a really good report from Stephen Tatillo, another ex-Kotaku um, person who um, has a website called Axios doing a whole report on how gaming is just unbelievably massive right now. I think it's a $184 billion industry. Yeah. Um, and it's just that whole thing of like there are so many TV shows in production, the, the, the fallouts and the God of Wars and the Horizons, so many movies that are coming, like obviously The Last of Us is coming. Um, gaming is absolutely humongous right now and more and more big corporate and entities want to get involved in it um, and that has a knock-on effect for people like us who have grown up with it who just go like okay but treat it carefully yeah. don't just stretch this out and mine this and get the money out don't just do the thing that we've seen happen to so many other 
um, industries or so many other mediums. And that is what is going to happen, but I'm already reacting to it. Um, and I'm just like, yeah, like it's not like we're not going to have fun with a lot of the products that come out, yeah. but is there not a happy medium here like that you would hope it lands on eventually? I hope it is. And I think as gaming continues to grow uh, and it continues to get bigger mm. and the mainstream perhaps leaves the likes of you and I behind, I think Horrifying. I'm having to come to terms with the fact that like gaming as a whole, is not for me, but mm. not, not, and I mean that like not everything <laughs> in it. Can't is get you for off me. Fortnite. You can't get me off no. Fortnite. But there are certain parts of the gaming industry, certain franchises, certain scales of production, certain indie developers that are so my thing. It's mm. almost painful. Like I think about it too much, <laughs> and it's for me. It's like focusing in on those certain things, mm. and that's why I maybe worry about gaming industry going all in on a certain brand of game because if if it becomes too homogenized if you lose that diversity in yeah. the development if you only have the big spectacles or you only have the you know smaller indie games you'll lose that kind of you know let me go over to this corner for a little bit let me investigate this side of mm. the gaming space let me jump into vr for a little bit that i currently love right now so that's when we look at um you know shrye saying this about game development mm. if this is indicative of a, of a full shift that's when i become a little bit worried because i'm fine to wait but i i, I don't want that weight to put off publishers and minimize what they green light and also how, how if you're working in an industry that is like not necessarily indebted to entertainment and pop culture or like certain zeitgeists and things that you need to nail in the moment. Um, they'd come around. How can you possibly plan something six years in advance? I know that Ubisoft have a whole wing of their company designed to trying to read the tea leaves of the of any industry or entertainment in general and trying to predict stuff ahead of time. Um, but I just feel like that's such an untenable way to work. Like imagine starting a project like right now today, but it's not going to see the light of day until 2028 or 2030. And then be like, well, I hope people still care about it. And, and if they, they don't, we've wasted all this money. <laughs> it gets like, leaked in 2027, yeah. and then you just go it, and then it comes out, and it's technically not up to snuff because some marketing executive demanded the release date be right now. Yeah, exactly. They they, wait year. Some last-minute thing that we do an article in 2035 saying the game you missed from 2030 yes. that way more people should have played. Um, but yeah, I just that whole thing. It's not that maybe that just is the way things are going. But I feel like there's an extreme. There's like a if it like you said, if it's a scale, then we had like maximum creativity and a manageable um, production budget attached across the 2000s to early 2010s. The end of the 2010s got into microtransactions and loot boxes and ways to sort of like get more, more, more and more money out of people. And I feel like we're still in that like booming other side of the scale. Like how much money can we get out of this? How many reboots and remakes and sequels to things can we do and franchise everything for the love of God? And it'll settle again. Like yeah. I think it'll settle a little bit and that'll that'll happen maybe across this generation. I think um, so. I which in so. itself is a weird staggered generation anyway. This, this is kind of what I want to clarify. And I'm, I worry that I've repeated myself so much. Like no. I used The Last of Us as an example before, you know, Neil Druckmann getting the opportunity to do that. Yes. And I want to say that I, I'm okay with the longer development cycles as long as we're still getting those opportunities. Mm. If everything has to just be The Last of Us because it worked once, it has to be Uncharted. That's when, like, I just think we are kind of minimizing those chances for risk, like you mentioned, mm. you know, those experiments. Like, then I would be craving a smaller Naughty Dog game that is more experimental. It's like, when you look at PlayStation especially, mm -hmm. for the past few years, they've been all in on franchises, and it's like... I want some new IP. I don't just want uh, Horizons forever. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Horizon was so refreshing because it came after a decade of Killzone that was pushed on you so hard <laughs> because that's all they wanted to the uh, killer. bank on. You know what I mean? And The Last of Us is so refreshing because it came after two Uncharted games mm. and it was something new and it was a different way to do storytelling and video games. And it's like, put the budgets behind those ideas. Whether that's they're big scale, whether they're small scale, those are the ideas that we need to push because mm. that's what gaming's all about, man. I feel like that's where we've been since 2013. Like you said, Last of Us is one of the greatest games of all time and was my, well, probably is my favorite game of all time. It's definitely way up there. Um, I feel like that's where we've been since 2013. This idea of mature stuff being um, quite solemn stuff. Everything that's, anything that's like adult or weighty has to be sort of um, like morose or shoegazy or whatever, or aping in some form The Last of Us. I feel like Sony built their entire first party uh, identity around that. Even God of War got rebooted to kind of be like a Last of Us. 
in terms of a two-person, two-character system um, and over-shoulder cameras and everything else. And I just, that whole thing is kind of interesting in terms of the major shifts in like what people respond to. And obviously they are responding to it very, very well, but it's, it is that thing of like, when was the last major shift in what we all steered towards? Yeah. Because um, it's like, you can chart some sort of um, arc from like bullet time across the early 2000s and ragdoll physics all the way through to like shoegazy, super serious plots about mature themes that came from The Last of Us. That, and that's like that's the last thing that we did. Yeah. Um, that sort of like everyone tries to ape. They try and do a Last of Us style thing. Honestly, I think it was Destiny or Fortnite. Mm, yeah, it was yeah. live services for Four me. Four person defend this point games. 100%. Like yeah. the Sony um, style of storytelling, the Sony style of first party exclusives is still around obviously mm. but I don't necessarily think that's even around in the mainstream anymore when you come mm. to like the third party publishers like they are chasing the live service monetization mm. you know they don't how many times have we talked about the dearth of great stories to talk about and that's because you know I do think that while it was definitely popular even that's fallen out of vogue now yeah, and now we're yeah. getting a shift to this kind of like live service thing but even that kind of feels like maybe is that coming to an end we've had that you know, hmm. for a good few years now, probably since Destiny came out in 2015 or whenever it came out, 2014. Um, sitting alongside this kind of like storytelling push from certain devs as well. Mm -hmm. And what, where do we go after that? Like, well, that's the thing. What is the PS6 la launch lineup going to look like? I'm not entirely sure. I didn't even know if we were going to get a PS6. I remember that whole thing that Yves Guillermo said from Ubisoft where he was like, this is before the PS5. He's like, there'll be one more console generation yeah. and then you'll just have a PlayStation and it'll just do everything. And then the assumption that you'll be able to stream everything or download everything. And somehow you won't need to worry about another upper echelon of graphics, which maybe ties into my thing about like a certain level of graphics just is what we have. You don't need to get better or whatever. I, I just, I wonder what you do. I think of it as a comparison to cinema. Yeah. Um, Cause it's like a certain fidelity of camera is what we got to as an overall benchmark. I remember the whole influx of like 54 frames a second when The <laughs> Hobbit came out and everyone was like, oh God, it looks weird. And we went back to like 27 or whatever it is. Um, and we sort of just settled on that. Obviously there's better lenses and like, I remember when Collateral was like the first film shot on digital. Things like yes. that, where I'm like, these like major milestones in this medium. And I'm like, but for the, like, we sort of achieve them and then we settle into them for a bit. Yeah. And it's just like, tech wise, does gaming ever have one of them? Where it's, or do we keep going better graphics next year, guys? I think so. First off, I'm yes. not, Eves Gilmore can say there's only going to be one more, um, you know, console generation all mm. he wants. But that man also says that Beyond Good and Evil 2 is coming out at some point. Like, I'm not, I'm not, he's, no, I, I, okay, I no, he's, ain't no wrong. he does what he wants, you're but wrong. He, no, 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 no. They also said that, you know, survival horror was dead, that we've got to get no more consoles because mobile was the future. Like, I've heard executives say, say that stuff before. Yeah. To me, I, 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 I do like the comparison to film, but I think even in film, mm. like we still get advances in that realm. Yes, we're not in terms of how a movie is shot, or the cameras that are being used, even though cameras obviously still get mm. improved, but in like the kind of digital effects. Yeah, like, yeah, that's I was still say the editing side. Completely blown, blown up. The, you know, even stuff like drones, the implementation of drones is changing how mm. movies are shot and stuff. And I do think that in terms of video games, you know, people were probably sat around in the PS2 era going, well, how much better can it get? You know what I mean? To some degree. I yeah. mean, that's, yeah, I think that there's, obviously when you get like literally photo real looking stuff now, it's not that I, I definitely think there's always going to be uh, forward momentum, but for me, it's more in like the physics or the loading or the, the things that were talked about at the start of this generation that we're, we're yet to really see. Yeah. And this idea of like, you know, constant loading everything so you can design levels that are completely different. Um, but yeah, as like this year starts to roll out, this assumedly will be the first like proper year of the new generation because um, there's a lot more next-gen exclusive stuff. Um, and even the next Final Fantasy VII, to bring it all back to the start of this podast, um, Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, like the part two of the remake, is only on PS5. So I don't know how long that was only on PS5 in development, yep. but assumedly it'll make better use of those environments than the other one did. I mean, one of the first big games of the year, the Dead Space remake, that's yes. a next-gen exclusive as mm. well. You know, mm -hmm. it, it's, it finally feels, and we'll talk about this more next week, it finally feels like <laughs> the next-gen is properly here. You know, Sony last night said that their shortages have ended, so now the PS5 is going to be more readily available. Mm. It feels like we've had this transitionary period, obviously because of, not intended to a certain extent, because we had the pandemic, we had all yep. these shortages, whatnot. Mm -hmm. But now, hopefully, this year will be an interesting year <laughs> for the next gen to finally start, Scott. Yes. Speaking of being an interesting year, this is the first wind-up of the year, of 2023. I've been Scott Taylor, you've been Josh Brown. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Always a pleasure to be heard by all of you once again, and we'll catch you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Flex 
Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.